Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project. The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye? Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG first, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying. Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D ebook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so Faye, last time we met up, we were talking about progesterone, um, and we went through the MICE or MICE trial, the OG trial on intramuscular mm-hmm. progesterone, if you will. Um, but today we're going to review that second study, the confirmatory trial, the prolong study. Um, let's review our learning objectives once more. Yeah. So as you said, we did already review the MIS trial. So today we're going to review the prolonged trial. Um, and we're also going to then discuss some of the conclusions that we as the OBGYN community have drawn from both of these studies. And then, you know, we'll of course talk about why do we do what we do and what do we actually do um, in practice with, you know, you over um, in Seattle and me in Philadelphia to kind of see what the range of practices are basically. Um, You know, Nick, I know last time we introduced um, both of the trials. So we had talked about the prolonged trial coming after the MIS trial. So the MIS trial was in 2003. The prolonged trial came out in 2019. We talked about the reasons behind why these studies were done. So let's launch right into it. Let's talk about how that prolonged trial was done. Yeah. So with the prolonged trial, um, again, we're looking in this study to do a confirmatory study with the end of the mice trial happening early because of the evidence of benefit so the fda said okay do a confirmatory trial just to make sure that this actually works and let's see some prolonged follow-up the kind of trouble was that in the united states with the conditional approval of 17 ohp it had really already become the standard of care here and so you couldn't just easily redo a randomized trial in the united states so ultimately they had to go abroad to do this study and so this prolonged study was done at 93 centers across nine countries um, the eligibility criteria and exclusion criteria were pretty much the same as the MICE trial, again, keeping in the spirit of being a confirmatory trial. And the randomization scheme was overall fairly similar. They were randomized two to one to receive 17 OHP versus placebo weekly, starting between 16 and 20 weeks, six days. And then the placebo, rather than just being castor oil, was a combination of benzoyl, benzoate, castor oil, and benzyl alcohol for whatever effects that may have had. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
With respect to the outcomes, um, this time around, they specified actually looking primarily at preterm birth under 35 weeks. Um, they then also looked at a composite neonatal morbidity and mortality index. Secondarily, they looked at neonatal death, preterm births under 32 and under 37 weeks, and also incidents of medically indicated preterm births, and then had a primary safety outcome as well that was fetal or early infant death. Now, statistically, unlike in the MICE trial, they really wanted to have adequate power to identify both primary efficacy and primary safety analyses. So they calculated here, actually, they needed a lot more patients. They needed 1,665 live-born infants to detect a reduction of 35% in the rate of that neonatal composite index. And then they also stated that they needed 1,707 patients to provide 98% power to detect a reduction of about 30% in the rate of preterm birth under 35 weeks. So they've really upped the ante here in terms yeah. of trying to achieve high statistical power and certainty to say that this medication really does work. Um, right. So what happened? You know, again, to kind of go over the patients and the demographics here. So um, this study was conducted between November 2009 to October 2018, which makes sense. It came after the MICE trial. They ended up having a total of 1,740 women consented and agreed to the study, where 1,100 of them were allocated to the 17 OHP, and then um, 580 of them were allocated to the placebo. And again, it's interesting because you brought this up already. 390 of these women, so not a huge number, right? Probably, you know, less than a quarter were actually randomized in the United States, um, whereas 1,300, over 1,300 were randomized in non-U.S. countries. And it's just like you said, Nick, it was really hard to get U.S. Uh, patients to participate in the study because remember in 2011, that was when we had that changeover where 17-OHP was approved by the FDA. So the demographics were, again, in the study itself, very similar between groups. So about 89%, 88% were Caucasian in, in both groups. Uh, the pre-pregnancy BMI was around 23 for both. About 90% were married or living with a partner. Um, and then if we really think about it, though, you know, we said that the last study, there was a lot of differences in demographics between this the prolonged study and the original MACE trial. So the originally, um, in the previous study, about 60% of the patients were black. Uh, the pre-pregnancy BMI was a little higher. It was at 26. Um, and, you know, compared to the percent who were married or living with a partner, um, in this study, which was 90%, the MACE trial had a, just 50% uh, of the patients were married or living with a partner. And then also the smoking percentage was very different. Only 7 to 8% smoked in pregnancy in the prolonged study versus 20 to 22% in the earlier study. So within the groups, um, you know, in the studies, they're very similar, meaning that there's no huge difference between the placebo and the, you know, 17-OHP group. But unfortunately, we see already that both of these demographic groups are very different across these trials. So talk to me a little bit about those primary outcomes, Nick. Um, what did they find in this second study? Yeah, so again, the primary maternal outcome was looking at preterm birth prior to 35 weeks. And in this study, there was no difference between the arms. It was 11% in the 17-OHP group versus 11.5% in the placebo group. And the spontaneous preterm birth rate was 8.4 versus 8.9% respectively. So 
essentially the same. Um, and also, as you astute listeners are probably noting, much, much lower incidence of preterm birth in this study versus the MICE trial. Now, this wasn't a primary outcome again, but preterm birth under 37 weeks to be a fair comparison was 23.1% versus 21.9% in these groups. Again, not really a difference at all between the groups. Again, so, so different though for the mice study where those percentages were 36% in the active treatment and 50% in the control groups. And then from a neonatal outcome perspective, there really wasn't any difference in preterm labor rates difference of composite neonatal morbidity mortality or subsequent outcomes there. Um, on the secondary outcome perspective as well, preterm birth under 32 weeks was not different. Other things like use of cerclage, preterm labor evaluations, tocolytic agent use, steroids, GDM, preeclampsia, C-section, neonatal outcomes like RDS, NEC, IVH, none of these things were different between the groups ultimately. So this study that was done in consultation with the FDA as part of the approval for use of 17-hydroxyprogesterone didn't confirm the findings of that MICE trial. Um, and then in addition, actually had a much lower event rate of preterm birth than in the MICE trial. So I think, Faye, as we hinted last time, there's a lot of things to unpack and discuss here. Yeah, I mean, I think we've already like started to talk about the differences between the two studies and some interesting things to point out. The first of which is, of course, the demographic differences, right? We talked about how one study was primarily U.S.-based, you know, the first trial, and then the second study just couldn't really feasibly be done in the United States because it was done at a time where 17-OHP was already approved by the FDA and basically had become standard of care. And so the, the, the second study had to be done overseas. So that was number one, is that the first study seemed to may potentially be more applicable to, to patients in the U.S., though, of course, we know that the second study is closer to our current timeline. The other thing to note is that, you know, the difference in demographics in terms of race, BMI, smoking, marriage, um, living with with partners were completely different between the two studies, um, where the MIS trial had a larger predominance of Black women, sixty percent, um, higher rates of smoking, uh, higher BMI overall, and higher rates of not being married or living with their partner. The other study had much much lower rates of all of these things. So basically, the two studies had very different uh, people that were included. And then again, I think the last thing we talked about that was really interesting was that there's this huge discrepancy in baseline preterm labor rates. And so, you know, even the MIS trial had estimated that their baseline preterm labor rates would be about 35, 37%. And interestingly, in the progesterone group, it was 50%, which is like super, super high. And the rates in the prolonged study are basically about half or even less than half of that of, in the MIS study. And so, that's one quick thing that you kind of want to like compare and say, why the difference in preterm delivery, right? Is it because there's better care now? Is it because patients that are not in the U.S. have lower rates of preterm birth? What's going on? And then the last thing that I just always want to bring up is why is castor oil what they chose to be the placebo? Um, I, I mean, I know that there's not great data out there for castor oil putting people into preterm labor, but I feel like it can cause contractions usually due to GI distress when ingested. So like it just didn't seem like the best option. I don't know if it was like because giving a injection of castor oil felt like giving an injection of 17 OHP, but I, I don't understand that choice, Nick. <laughs> I beats me too, Faye. Um... I would not want an injection of any sort of 
like oil, but I guess progesterone is suspended in oil. So maybe that's what it is. I don't know. So, you know, let's talk now about the consequences of this study. So what happened after Mies and what happened after Prolong? Well, we've talked a bit already about what happened after Mies is that everybody started doing 17-hydroxyprogesterone. And the FDA rubber stamped it with sort of the asterisk of the confirmatory trial that then took, you know, a while because especially the number of patients they ultimately needed to recruit um, to get there. So essentially it became the standard of care in the United States. And again, that's part of why Prolong had to get pushed with, you know, 80% of the patients or close to it recruited from overseas. Um, After Prolong came out though, um, there obviously was a lot of debate about what to make of this. And the FDA took a look at the evidence, um, and an advisory committee proposed to take McKenna or 17 OHP off the market in 2019, a 9-7 to 7 vote of that committee. Um, and there's a great New York Times article that kind of details all of that with the committee and the voting and who makes up that committee, um, which we'll post on our website. You should take a look at it in your free time, um, just to sort of the, the history of this. I'm glad that we're talking about this now, Faye, and sort of bringing it up, because I know that we've talked about preterm birth prevention on the podcast before, um, but actually here in about a month, October 17th through 19th, the FDA is meeting again to discuss the medicine and then ultimately hear arguments about whether it should stay on the market. Um, and so probably sometime after that, we'll get some news about whether 17 OHP is going to go off the market. Um, or if it will remain in some capacity. Now, there have been folks who've been trying to add to the evidence on progesterone because we have these two large conflicting trials um, and add some basically meta-analysis to the picture. Yeah, so um, after all of this came out in 2021, came the EPIC study uh, with three Ps. So incredibly epic, I guess, Um, which stands for Evaluating Progesterone for Preventing Preterm Birth International Collaborative, a meta-analysis of individual participant data from randomized controlled trials. This was a huge deal. It came out in The Lancet, like I said, in 2021. And and don't worry, we're not going to do a third article on our journal club about this, my goodness, but we probably could. Basically, this study looked at 31 trials that were included uh, with individual participant data about any type of progesterone use. What they looked at was, you know, oral progesterone, vaginal progesterone, IM progesterone, and kind of looked, put all the data together and tried to see, you know, what was the effect in preventing preterm birth. And from these studies, it seemed that vaginal progesterone and 17-OHP both reduced birth before 34 weeks gestation in high-risk singleton pregnancies. The absolute risk reduction is overall greater for patients with short cervixes, which totally makes sense, right? We know that they are at higher risk. And the data seems a little bit better for vaginal progesterone, especially in consistently decreasing preterm birth less than 37 weeks and less than 34 weeks. For 17-OHP, the data just crosses the line of no effect for uh, preterm birth less than 34 weeks. So it seems maybe that the data is a little bit better, question mark, from this last trial for vaginal progesterone. I think 
What we can take away from this, Nick, is that there is a lot of uncertainty about progesterone use. Certainly, it seems to help in some capacity, but I think this will then lead to some differences in practice, and that's kind of what I want to talk about now. So, of course, I don't want to completely discount 17-OHP, um, but I do kind of want to talk about, you know, what do you guys do over in Seattle and kind of what do we do here in Philly? So let's start with you guys. You know, are you guys still doing 17-OHP or just vaginal progesterone? What's going on? Yeah, you know, I think that the SMFM statement on the Prolong study and the subsequent guidance that's come from SMFM and ACOG has kind of shaped our approach, which is to say one of shared decision-making, if you will. Um, no, I think that for patients who have been on intramuscular progesterone before, there's hesitance to rock the boat, right? If it worked mm -hmm. for you before, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to fix what's not broken. Um, but for patients who had a spontaneous preterm birth and are new to know the potential for needing progesterone, um, I think there's a combination of things that we do in the way of cervical length screening, in the way of maybe being a little bit more aggressive with sono-indicated cerclage, and then looking at potentially the either additive effects of progesterone or talking to patients about whether they want to start progesterone outright with that history of preterm birth. Um, and truthfully, I think that I'm seeing more patients ultimately elect for doing nothing or doing cervical length screening only as opposed to doing any sort of progesterone. And I don't know if that's just a Seattle thing um, or if that is right. more of a national trend in any way, but there seems to be sort of a general souring, I would say, on the use of progesterone um, from our patients after sort of the shared decision-making discussion. Um, what about you, Faye? For the longest time there, everybody was getting 17 OHP if they had a previous preterm birth. And I think Penn has kind of looked at the data and shied away a little bit more from 17 OHP. Um, you know, certainly we're kind of like you. If a patient has used it before and they said, that was what worked for me and I got my, you know, full-term delivery after 17 OHP, we're certainly like, sure, of course you can have your 17 OHP. Um, I will have to say that I think there is some concern that some insurance companies, because of this FDA advisory committee decision... Um, they may not be covering it anymore. Um, and so that could be a certain concern for some patients. And it's just harder to get at the pharmacies as well. Mm. So that's number one. Uh, the second thing is I think we kind of advise our patients the same way that you do. We kind of talk about this combination of serial cervical lengths, right, versus, you know, just starting vaginal progesterone outright. And I do think that we talk a little bit more about vaginal progesterone as kind of like something in not, instead of 17 OHP. Um, and so a lot of our patients are more likely to say, you know what, let me start on the progesterone at 16 weeks vaginally. Um, let's start the serial cervical length. And then a lot of times we're making that hard decision because there's not great data to say that progesterone and cerclages work better necessarily together to mm -hmm. then say, well, you know, we gave you the vaginal progesterone. We kind of don't want to take it away. But if we, in the event where we have to do a cerclage, a lot of time there's this shared decision-making of do we or don't we stop the progesterone? Yeah. I'm just waiting for the study, Faye, on the progesterone-infused pessary, because um, I think that's really <laughs> going to be the device that kicks it off. <laughs> well, I was really thinking that we could get, you know, progesterone-infused mercelline tape 
to then Very put cerclage. it in as a cerclage. Exactly. Yeah, only um, if. And, <laughs> and medical students, uh, interns, residents out there, we are joking. Um, please don't do that. <laughs> it's terrible that we're joking about progesterones and hypothetical things that you could do. But yeah. it's just like, it also I think points to sort of where we are with the evidence because I think a lot of it is really just you know, you can read into these things one way or another that might support, you know, using something or not using something for the patient in front of you. Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. I don't feel like it's super satisfying, right? It's not like we have a, yes, we're going to do this type of thing now, but that's kind of the way that science goes. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to support the show and donate, go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Find show notes for this episode, last week's episode on the MICE trial, and all of our previous episodes on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. There you can also find the Rosh Review Question of the Week. And if you have questions for us, if you have corrections for this show, or you have another journal club that you want us to do, go ahead and email us, CreogsOverCoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.